Welcome to Ask of Expert, brought to you by the team at Vexit.com. Our bi-weekly series is the podcast helping business owners, managers, and professionals thrive in the world of modern work. Here's this week's host, Polly Craig. Well, hello, and thank you for being here. Before we get started, I want to let you know that we really do appreciate you investing your valuable time with us, and we want to make sure that you get value in return. If you have questions for professionals or topics that you would like to have covered, send us an email at podcast at vexit.com and we'll find the answers right here on Ask of Expert. You can also find the show notes and reference material at vexit.com forward slash podcast. And remember, that's Vexit with two X's. Forbes summed it up well when they said that contracts and other agreements are a vital aspect of running a business, including when it comes to managing your employees. Employment contracts allow you to cement terms of employment in advance, but they do need to be constructed and worded carefully in order to make sure that they're effective. Failing to do so could result in an unenforceable contract. While it's true that employment contracts are generally considered to be legally binding, they cannot supersede provincial and federal laws, nor can they be used to circumvent your employees' rights. Different provinces have their own laws on what terms can or cannot be enforced under the contract, so it's worth consulting with a lawyer in your region when drawing up terms of your agreement. Today's guest is going to shed light on employment contracts for us with her vast experience in employment, labor, human rights, and insurance law. As a partner at Fillmore Riley, Celia Ferguson brings her experience and knowledge to help us discover the must-haves in employment agreements and how to make the contract side of hiring run as smoothly as possible and in the best interest of everyone involved. We're thrilled to have you with us today, Celia. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here as well. Business owners, you know, you're so excited. You've got this great idea and you finally move forward and you're, you realize, oh, I actually now need to hire employees to help me take this forward. What are the first steps that any employer should do when they're hiring on people? Because I'm assuming starting off on the right foot is a good idea. Yes, absolutely. Um, Some things that I always discuss with new business owners is, first and foremost, talking about putting together a written employment agreement. Whenever somebody phones me, whether it's an employer or an employee, and they tell me that they have an issue, one of the first questions I'll always ask is, well, is there a written employment agreement? Because that's where that sets out the terms, really the, the rules of the game. When you're starting a business, one of the first things I think you should be thinking about is whether it's a template employment agreement um, so that you can use it for many different employees or specific ones for specific types of employees. But that's a very good uh, place to start. Should every employee, regardless if they're part-time or term, have some sort of agreement or contract? I think there are definitely benefits to that. There are lots and lots and lots of employees that don't have written employment agreements. And likely there's quite a few that really don't necessarily need them just because of uh, the type of, of work that they're doing or the reason that they've been hired. But as a general rule, it's always better to have one than not. Well, I imagine it gives guidelines because you don't know what's going to happen down the road that then you have something to fall back on that that tells you how to deal with certain situations. Right. You always, you know, it's it's always have when, when things do turn sour and you always think to yourself, well, you know, I've, I've got great employees. We, we get, get along great and there's never any issues, but that's well and good while things are great. But you always want to prepare for those 
times that issues may arise. So you want to be always have something in your back pocket. So are there a number of things that are the must have included in the contract that you can share with us? Yeah, there's quite a few things that you can include. And like I said, they really set out the rules of the game so that everyone is on the same page in terms of what entitlements the employee has, what obligations each party has. And there are a few things that are really, really beneficial um, for both parties too, so that they understand what your, like I said, what those entitlements and obligations are. And one of those big things is what happens in when the employee is terminated. I know that employers sometimes don't like thinking about that and employees don't either because you're fresh into a new relationship. And why are we talking already about what's going to happen, you know, at the end of it? But it's always good to set it out then and there so that so that the parties know what those obligations and entitlements are. Because there's two, there's two different obligations when an employee is terminated. You could have statutory, an employer could have statutory obligations upon termination or common law obligations. And I find that a lot of time employers will phone me up and say, you know what, I, I've terminated an employee, but it's all good because, you know, when I phoned employment standards and they told me that these were the entitlement under the employment standards code in, in Manitoba. And so I don't know why the employee's mad because I've given everything they're entitled to. And that may be so from a statutory perspective, but an employee may also have what's called common law entitlements, which go beyond just what's stipulated and set out in, in provincial employment standards. So what types of things would that include? Like notice what, what an employee is entitled to on termination without cause would either be advance notice of termination or pay in lieu of termination. Lay people usually refer to a severance. Those minimum standards are set out in Manitoba in the Employment Standards Code and each province in Canada would have their own similar legislation which would set out the minimum entitlements upon termination not for cause. And so lots of employers think that okay if I give that amount or provide that notice in lieu of pay then then I've done everything that I'm required to do but they fail to appreciate that there may be entitlements beyond just that statute like common law reasonable notice. So with things that would dictate that, would that be length of employment? What other things would be included in that? For the statute that stipulates the minimum entitlements upon termination, not for cause, it's solely time-based. So if you've been employed for four years, you get this amount. If you've been employed for eight years, you get this. It's just time-based. But if someone's entitled to a reasonable notice, the common law principle of reasonable notice, then it's a bunch of different things. It's the time they've been employed. It's their age. It's the type of work that they did, the position they held, the training and expertise. And we look at all those things because what we're trying to answer is how long is that employee going to take to find comparable employment right now? A lot greater question than just, than just how long they've been employed. I was wondering, you know, now with all the changes in businesses being forced to have people work from home and now they're wanting to call people back to the office and some people not wanting to go, is location of where you're working from something that should be included in a contract or does the employer have the right to dictate they can or can't work from home? How does that work? Yes, a location of work is definitely something that you could put in an employment contract. The employer may want to be flexible about that for its own reasons as well and, and say that, you know, okay, your primary place of work is going to be X, 
but it could be changed at the sole discretion of the employer to give that flexibility in the event you want to be remote work or something like that. But absolutely, anything really having to do with term of employment, anything having to do with the employment is something that you could put in the agreement. But I always think it's a good it's a good thing to say that the employer has the sole discretion to change it, as long as it's not a huge material term that, you know, I can change your pay to, you know, $2 if I wanted to. But generally speaking, you want to provide the employer or give the employer discretion to change certain things. So it's not so rigid. And are there any other things that are must-haves in that initial contract that you can highlight for us? And then I guess the next thing would be talking about what are the requirements? You've hired people now and you have your first employees, you have your contract. What are the other requirements that a business has, policies that they need to have in place that related to employment? To answer the first part of the question, something else that you may want to consider putting in an employment contract is, is our terms revolving around overtime. Two ways that an employee can be entitled to overtime. They may be entitled to it that the provincial employment statute stipulates who's entitled and who's exempt from overtime. But simply because someone may or may not be entitled to overtime under statute doesn't mean that they may not also be entitled to it contractually. So it's the employment agreement is always is also a good place to set out who's entitled to overtime on in what circumstances and whether pre-approval is required, just so that there is no confusion in respect of who, what, and when in respect of overtime, because there are a lot of claims. You know, you don't want to be in a place where somebody's seized being an employee and all of a sudden they've come back for a claim on overtime saying, I've worked overtime for the last five years. I've been keeping my own log about it. I've actually worked 10 hours every day, and now you have to pay me for all that. So you want to have an employment agreement that stipulates overtime terms, as well as policies relating to it as well. And is it different if somebody works hourly versus on a salary? In Manitoba, it's not. Whether or not someone is entitled to overtime by statute depends on the type of work that they're doing, not the method in which they're being paid. Yeah. Very interesting. Before we leave that, is there anything else that you want to highlight that should be a must-have in an employment contract that employees would be looking for? Um, There's lots of things that you'd want to consider. You'd put in there whether term of employment is it an indefinite hire, and by indefinite, I just mean that there's no specific end date, or is it a fixed term? Those are something to consider. Vacation entitlements, whether or not the employee is going to be subject to restrictive covenants based on the type of job that they have, the position that they hold. What I mean by restrictive covenants is, you know, a non-solicitation clause or a non-competition clause. So those things are great to include if it's the type of position that warrants it. You know, confidentiality provisions that the employee will keep confidential, the employer's, you know, documents, information and everything proprietary to the return of company property, even, you know, when employment ceases. Those types of things are really good to include and are easy to include and will set out the parameters for both during employment and after. And what about employees using their own cell phones, as an example, or their own computers? Are those things that should be in a contract or is that more something that's just a a verbal thing? 
that to me is more something that maybe would be included in a, in a policy, an employee policy in terms of how you deal with using personal electronic devices for work and more in terms of ensuring confidentiality and, and those types of things. So I think that that's better in a policy in terms of terms of use and rules around that than perhaps in an employment. Great. So then let's just get back to the question about what other agreements should an employer have in place? And I understand there's certain things that are required in certain provinces. You're Mm -hmm. in Manitoba. So can you touch on anything that needs to be addressed? Well, you may want to think about putting together an employee handbook, which sets out policies. It can include as mundane as dress code and things like that, but also important features like a respectful workplace or harassment policy. You know, in Manitoba, those are having a policy such as that is is mandatory in, in Manitoba and requires certain things within those policies. So, you know, a statement by the employer that they're committed to a, a harassment-free workplace and setting out the how to make a complaint and and how an investigation, the steps of an investigation. So you'll want to have that type of, of policy in place for sure once you get up and go. And any other type of employee related policy, vacation, IT policies, things like that. Things to just so that the employee knows how to act within the workplace and the rules in respect of all of the different facets of employment. Wonderful. So you must, that's a must have. And is there a template that people can go to or does it have to be, do we have to have a lawyer help us do that as business owners or can we take a template and have it tweaked to our specific business? So a lot of provincial workplace safety and health websites provide templates that will include the mandatory provisions or requirements, things that need to be included in that policy. You can, you know, revise it so that it works for your particular company. Like you required to investigate a complaint, but in Manitoba, you can really spell out how it is you want the steps of investigation and having, and you know, having a policy that sets out the investigation steps will satisfy the legislation. There is a bit of discretion in terms of what you can put into these policies. Usually what I suggest is either getting help with putting it together at the get-go or taking a stab at it yourself and then just having a lawyer review it to ensure that it does meet all of the statutory requirements because the Workplace Safety and Health Act and the regulations do set out in detail what needs to be in there. It's very specific things. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. So if you hire people as employees versus contractors, would if you have a contractor, would they fall under the same rules they would if you have your harassment policy that would apply to them as well or what is the relationship where you have a contractor they make their own deductions maybe I'm buying so many hours a month or a week what have you can you touch on that 
Well, you want to ensure that they are a proper independent contractor because it's not just for a company or a business to decide, okay, I'm going to make you an employee. I'm going to make you an independent contractor. Relationship has to be one that's the test of an independent contractor. So there's many things that you look at all surrounding the relationship between that individual and the business to determine what type of relationship it is. And the test is a bit nuanced depending on for what reason you're looking at it, whether it's just the different type of law, whether we're looking at for tax, whether we're looking at it for employment purposes, but all in all, they just are assessing the relationship to see if there's ones of dependence or whether or not the contractor is really in business for themselves. So it, it's not you saying that he, is an, he or she is an independent contractor, which is the deciding factor. It's really the underlying facts of the relationship. So can you, maybe maybe we can tell it sort of in a, in a story format. If I have a contractor and I don't do my due diligence or I don't realize that I have to check into these things and it ends up that that individual, they don't have other contracts with other companies. They are only doing work with my company and they end up not paying their taxes and whatever's required of them to the government. Is there any responsibility on the company? Will Revenue Canada come back to the company and say, you should have been making deductions? Well, that's you've got it right there. And, and if they're actually in, and properly an employee, the employer hasn't been deducting those CPPDI, the the income taxes and remitting them both on behalf of the employee and in the employer in respect of the EI and CPP. So there could be, you know, penalties or fines as well as payback of those amounts that, that haven't been paid. So it is a question that you will want to put your mind to in terms of whether or not people are properly classified and get legal advice in those types of circumstances so that you can assess the risk. Can a lawyer ever tell you for certain that this person is this or this, you know, this person is an independent contractor? No, this person is an employee. Probably not. I mean, there may be circumstances where it's where it's quite evident. You know, in those gray areas, it's just going to be, you know, things do favor an independent contractor relationship over an employee. Are there still some risks? Yes. But based on the information that we have, I think that it, it's a fair that you're taking in that respect. So in those types of circumstances, I do think it's worth getting legal advice. There are some risks like you indicated in terms of uh, for the non-payment of those statutory deductions. Right. So if somebody comes and says, no, I don't want to be an employee. I want to be a contractor as the employer. You really have to do your homework to understand whether or not they qualify to be an independent contractor. Uh, Where would we find that information? In terms of what to look at? Well, it is a legal question, right? So I I would suggest getting the the legal advice because there's you'll have to look at certain things such as who controls the individual in terms of what they're doing, the level of control over that individual, what they're doing, you know, whose business is it, whose office and equipment are they using? Those are types of the those are some of the questions that you will be looking into to answer that question. Are there any stories that you have about situations that could have been avoided, putting things in place? We all know that that's the right thing to do, but we're busy trying to get a business off the ground or deal with growth. And this just kind of gets in the way and we get lazy. So 
any stories that you can shed some light on? Light bulb comes on going, I am going to go do that today because I don't want to be in that situation. Right. And I think the biggest one goes back to what I said at the beginning about recognizing the two obligations for terminations without cause that you may have statutory and common law obligations in terms of quote unquote severance. And I've been involved with cases where I have an employer that had a very long-term employee and decided they wanted to go in a different direction and thought and, and phoned employment standards and said, my employee's 24-year employee, how much pay in lieu, I don't have cause. It's just, I want to go in a different direction. How much pay in lieu am I required to pay? And they say, oh, 24 years, eight weeks. And they say, okay, so I cut a check for eight weeks. I think I'm good. I'm done. That's it. And then a claim comes and they're seeking wrong, wrongfully dismissed and, and they're seeking reasonable notice. And they say, I'm entitled to 24 months based on the common law. What I have to tell these employers is, yes, you did provide them the statutory pay. Good. Check that box. But there's this reasonable notice, this common law principle that's above and beyond the statutory notice. And as a general rule, you could be looking at between two to four weeks per year of service, depending on the individual factors of this case and the employee. And so you could be on the hook for a lot more than you originally thought. And you've already done the deed in terms of you've already terminated them. And had you known that that was the case, you certainly wouldn't have have terminated them or tried to take steps at least to mitigate that sum. There's ways of preventing that. And the biggest way is putting in the employment contract what employees are entitled to at for termination not for cause and limiting that possibly to those statutory provisions and ousting any sort of common law entitlement. So that's the really the biggest one is having a contract that stipulates and outlines obligations and entitlements, termination without pay. Oh, sorry, excuse me, termination without cause. So 24 years is a long time and maybe the particular person's contract hasn't been kept up to date or the agreement. So do you think one option to negotiate with an employee when you decide to terminate them rather than just doing either the letter or the law on the statute side and, you know, I don't really want to hire a lawyer to to help me Mm -hmm. figure this out. What are the ups and downs of that? In those cases, what I would probably suggest is is do get legal advice. Those can be hard to navigate. And in those cases, you do have a large exposure there. So you're going to want to mitigate that exposure as much as possible. And if you are wanting to enter into some sort of agreement with the employee of their exit, you want to ensure that you have completely finalized the situation so that there's no opportunity for that employee then to come back and, and issue a claim or any sort of demand going forward. So if you are going to negotiate, then what it would be is I'm going to pay you something. I think what is fair in the circumstances, it may not be all that you think you're entitled to, but we'll negotiate that. But in return, you're going to want to get some sort of legal release, which would release the employee from the ability to claim or demand for any further amounts relating to their employment going forward. So that would be an agreement that says, we're offering this, we give you a certain number of days to seek your own legal counsel, and then they sign off on that? Exactly that. You're being terminated. We're offering you this in light of the termination. And to be entitled to it, you're going to have to sign a release. 
you have this X many days to consider this, feel free to get legal advice. We'll hear from you before that deadline and we'll go from there. Yeah. Great. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Good. Wow. We know a lot about hiring people, <laughs> putting all these agreements in place. We touched on, you know, policies, manuals, if there's anything that we missed there. And are there any other items that we haven't covered off that you want to make sure that we touch on? Some things to think about or or things sometimes I get some questions about in respect of employment agreements and hiring is probationary periods. That's a big thing. And, and it's an important thing to employers because they want this period of time at the beginning of employment to assess the employee and an opportunity to review them to see if they're a fit, a good employee and all, all of that. And it's also a period of time for the employee to really evaluate the employer as well. When I'm talking to employers a lot of time and, and drafting up an employment agreement for them, they'll usually say, do you know what, I want to do a six month probationary period. And I say, okay, well, what, what is it that you want? Like, what is the purpose that you want that for? And I said, well, I'm going to review their employment. And at the end, I'll decide whether I want to keep them or not. When they say a time period that I want to assess them, and I may not keep them, the implication is that I want to be able to terminate them and not have to pay them anything, not give them any notice. It's just, we didn't work out and we're going to part ways. But in, in Manitoba and across the provinces, there's only a specific period of time that you have to make that assessment. Outside that time, there's going to be at least some minimum payout or notice that you'll be required to pay an employee or give an employee. So in Manitoba, under the Employment Standards Code, you only have 30 days. So after 30 days, you have to pay them at least one week pay in lieu or advance notice of termination. And, you know, Ontario, I think it's three months or something along those lines. So it, it changed. It's not the same length across Canada. It, it does depend on your province. But employers are sometimes surprised to hear that it's not the typical six months that you think that, you know, probationary period or three months, at least in Manitoba, it's not three months. And so while you can have that period of, of assessment, you still may be required to pay them out at the employee out some or give them advance notice. There's a lot of work that goes into setting up a business, hiring employees, but, you know, done right and putting your ducks in a row in advance, it's in everyone's best interest, really, because I'm sure that where you spend a lot of your time and I've been in situations myself, had I done it differently in the beginning, we're all trying to run businesses and we're good people, but sometimes it doesn't work out and we want to be fair and we want to be equitable for all. And that's much easier to do if we've put things in place to begin with and everyone's in agreement. And the last thing I'll just touch on, we've hired employees, we have the agreements in place. We talked a lot about termination, but as we go through our relationship over time, how important is it to do employee reviews on a regular basis? It is. It is important to do employee reviews because, well, for, for, for many reasons. One, I think from a human resources perspective, that employees like to have that one-on-one feedback and, and see where they are and, and discuss issues from the employer's perspective, but also from the employee's perspective. So there's that human resources element that's always important. But it's from a legal perspective, it's also really important to document issues because we've talked a lot today about termination not for cause, but there is termination for cause. 
And that is a very high threshold. There's two ways generally that an employer can terminate for cause. That's through progressive discipline or summarily because there's just been one, you know, egregious misconduct worthy of immediate dismissal. And that usually doesn't occur. I mean, it does. There, there are instances, you know, um, dishonest, you know, grave instances of dishonesty or theft or something of the like that warrants immediate dismissal. But most often it, it, go, it goes through the process of, of progressive discipline. And so performance appraisals and, and performance evaluations or form the basis of that progressive where you you speak about somebody's performance, you provide them progressive warnings, improvement needs to, to occur, and then you set the foundation in the stage in the event that you need to take further action. So the performance evaluations for that purpose are very important as well. Well, this has been really enlightening, and I'm hoping that we can all learn from this and put things in place before we run into issues and, you know, it makes everyone's life easier. We run companies that we rely on people and, and they rely on us to mm-hmm. have our ducks in a row and have proper documentation so that it builds on a, a much solid, more solid foundation. Thank you very much. And is there anything else at all that we want to touch on? I could probably go on for days. I mean, there's so many different um, know, areas of, of employment and labor law, but I think we touched upon some really important things that I think business owners of, of any size deal with. I'm hopeful that it was it was helpful to a lot of listeners. Well, that was a lot of great information from this week's expert, Celia Ferguson with Film O'Reilly. And remember, we take all the notes for you. You can access them at vexit.com forward slash podcast. And we would love for you to continue exploring and join in on all the conversations taking place throughout most social media channels and on vexit.com. Send us topics that you'd like covered or a problem that you'd like to have solved and we'll ask a Vexpert for you right here on our podcast. It's easy. Just email me and our team directly at podcast at vexit.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Please note that the conversation in this podcast is for informational and learning purposes and does not constitute legal, financial, or business advice. The Ask of Expert podcast is a production of Exit and distributed globally by the Sound Off Media Company. to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.